Hello, is this thing on? Welcome to Radio Video Village, the Tony Award-winning podcast about the craft of filmmaking and the technologies that make it all work. My name is Will Geisler. I'm a software developer and your esteemed podcast host, and I'm joined by three of my very favorite friends from film school, Tashi True, who's a film colorist and post-production specialist. Hi, that's me. Hello. Um, I'm joined also by Greg Cotton, who's a cinematographer and software developer. Hi. So delighted to be here. <laughs> oh, Good. And filmmaker and four-dimensional chess grandmaster, Andrew Finch. That's me. <laughs> Greg and I work together on Lattice, which is an application for working with color lookup tables for professional color workflows. You should check that out. It's super exciting. Um, Tashi, what have you been up to? Uh, I'm on hiatus right now, uh, just gearing up for the holidays. And uh, I wrapped up my work on uh, Thor Ragnarok back in October. Uh, I'm currently... Uh, in uh, preparation for a course that I teach at Chapman University on color grading and uh, modern post-production finishing. Sweet. Uh, Andrew, what's going on with you? Um, I just released a short film a few months ago that did pretty well online and got me some attention, I guess. So I've been trying to think of a feature film to make. Uh, It's called Others Will Follow. What's it about? It's about a mission to Mars that fails, and the value of space exploration. What is the value of space exploration? There's no say? value. Okay, good. <laughs> turns uh, out uh, we did all the research. It turns out there's no value. <laughs> Andrews looked into it, canceled the whole thing. 100 American dollars. <laughs> um, cool, that's awesome. A- Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about the attention you've received um, from the professional community um, uh, regarding yeah. your film? Well, so just a bit of backstory. I guess I I spent several years making this thing, put it online. Uh, it did pretty well. It had like one day on the front page of Reddit, which got most of the views that it has right now. Um, but it also, I, it seems like everyone I got an email from saw it on Vimeo. Um, so I guess the whole industry is looking at Vimeo for things. Um, but it got like me a lot just, of meetings. They just what? found it on Vimeo randomly? or I don't really know. I, I think they... Either they saw it in some kind of like playlist that someone aggregated it to, or yeah, maybe I don't really know how they found it because it didn't get a staff pick, so it's not like on any kind of. Well, video it was featured on Short of the Week, right? And yeah. a couple other, I'm I sure a couple a other like did, did like Gizmodo or any of those. It, um, it was on. It was featured on Io9, Space.com, a couple other smaller ones, but it seems like the people I had meetings with saw it on Vimeo somehow. I don't. I actually don't know how. Like they, uh, they told you, they're just like, hey, we saw it. I ran across it on Vimeo. Yeah, I, some of them may uh, have. I have an inkling I think it, was it was being, being passed, passed around. around. Yeah. But uh, I, it good. seems like most of the, yeah. the organic views were directly from Vimeo somehow because they look at it or maybe they have someone they follow on there. Um, but anyway, it got me meetings mostly with representation, management agent, stuff like that. Uh, a few producers, a um, couple pretty high-level ones, and then a few lesser ones. And... Uh, and then I got a manager. Uh, well, I mean, I, I chose a manager out of all the meetings I had, and uh, they happened to manage Guillermo del Toro and Damien Chazelle, so they can make any connection I need. It's just a matter of Ooh, making something worthy. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Greg, what have you been up to? Well, I'll tell you. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I've been a very tired man shooting a, a four, little four-week feature. Uh, that's a YouTube Red original okay. feature. Um, it's a sequel to 
a movie called The Thinning. And yeah, just been generally just very tired and uh, dreaming of set while not being on <laughs> like set. Like good or bad? But uh, okay. <laughs> it's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> but it's fine. It's great. It's oh, all right. over. We wrapped and it all went really well. And yeah. Awesome. Will, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been mostly just working. I work at a, 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 a day job, uh, sadly, um, doing uh, software engineering. So I've mostly been doing that. I got a new TV, which is very exciting. I got it yesterday. Um, and that's pretty much all I've been like thinking about is trying to figure out what all the settings are that I'm supposed to put on this stupid TV because it's very confusing. Um, Tell me all about your woes. <laughs> it's, a really, uh, it's a really important and sad problem. Which but TV did you buy? I bought um, an LG B7A, which is uh, uh, one of those really nice OLED ones, which is exciting. So it's the first 4K TV and HDR TV uh, that I've ever like had or like possibly seen. <laughs> like, I, don't know. I kind of significant upgrade, I might add, from your previous television, which is basically. Yeah, the worst I got, television got a lot of blowback about Sorry. my previous television, so I was feeling bad about it. Um, Basically, everyone in this group has that TV. So yeah, just I, just I guess we all have the same TV, except, except Greg. for Greg. Greg. No, I don't. I have a plasma. Yeah, well, we all have plasmas. Um, yeah. One of the weirdest things about this TV that I didn't expect, I guess, is that it's it's so bright, it's like we have to turn it down. We're, like, upset about it, which is, like, not what I was expecting. Because yeah. I remember Tashi was saying something about how, like, OLED TVs for, or, or just HDR TVs, like, at home, like, are just, like, not bright enough, right? Like, don't, aren't, like, professional OLED monitors or whatever that they grade movies on much, much brighter? Well, it, it's not that the monitors themselves are naturally darker. It's it's just that our standards for post-production have us grading in a dark room at 100 candelas per square meter, which is uh, substantially darker than you expect a uh, average consumer TV might be for daytime viewing in a brightly lit room. Uh, we have to standardize on something, though, and that's a good kind of middle ground between ultra dark, you know, like a home theater setup uh, or a casual, you know, daytime viewing experience. There's no way to fully chase what any consumer is going to do because their environment is so wildly different in every case. There's no systematic, uh, but in terms know, direction of like for that maximum output, like you guys are like Will and I, like the TV we all have is like 800 nits max in HDR mode. Whereas you guys are working on something more powerful, I assume. Yeah. Well, you know, well, okay. So, so there, there are two, two different things there. Like in, in HDR, you know, this TV might be a, 800 peak luminance, which doesn't mean that the full frame can be 800. It, you know, it's right. very unlikely that one of these displays is going to be able to display a full field of white at 800 nits. Um, for our listeners, nits are a uh, slang for candelas per square meter, which is the SI unit for uh, luminance. Um, same thing, same uh, quantity and value, just easier to say. Um, it won't be able to produce 800 nits of full white, but it could produce peak white, you know, small, tiny, tiny bits of white at that level. Um, and when we're grading, we're typically mastering on a 1000 nit display, or in some cases, a 4000 nit display. Um, and then levels are being derived through metadata 
for the different TVs as you're watching it live at home. And that's all part of the Dolby Vision HDR package. So it's a, you know, a combination of image data as well as metadata that tells the TV how to modulate its brightness for, you know, that particular content. Um, but that's, you know, a whole different side of things. You know, what, what Will's mentioning was a conversation we had previously about uh, our grading standards for standard dynamic range or SDR, or sometimes called LDR for low dynamic range. That's what video has been for, for many, many, many years. We standardize at 100 nits for that in a dark room uh, with a particular gamma function, which is uh, you know related to our perceptual and experience. And HDR of, is what? what? How many nits? HDR is high dynamic range. No, no, um, I mean how many nits is the standard? There is no single standard. So different oh. TV manufacturers are going to hit different targets. Um, I mean the grading standard. There is no single grading oh, standard. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, there's there's a standard format and um, workflow that we use. You know, if we're on a Dolby Vision, you know, type project, we'll be grading with the PQ function, which is a logarithmic encoding of uh, values. You know, uh, input values that correlate directly to real world exposure values from an ideal TV. Uh, and we might, for a particular project, you know, based on the producer's discretion and the type of distribution workflow they're using, they might say, we want to standardize at 1,000 nits because we like those TVs more. We like what we can get out of those reference monitors. Or, oh, no, we, we want to make sure this is future-proof for a, a, as bright of TVs as we can actually manufacture someday down the road with something like a 4,000-nit uh, master. Now, there's no consumer television that's available that can come anywhere close to 4,000 nits, that's something that you need a, you know, essentially a science project kind of compu- <laughs> uh, uh, kind of monitor to uh, display. And that's the uh, Dolby Pulsar display, which is uh, big, heavy, very noisy. Uh, it has multiple graphics cards in it, uh, driving its, um, uh, driving its processing as well as uh, four uh, uh, 20 amp circuits uh, driving it, so it, you you need a lot of power. It generates a lot of heat, uh, and you you can't buy them. So I, I love that your monitor has a graphics card in it. Yes, yeah, well, well, that that it's gives like you a, yeah, it gives you a little bit of a sense for you know, the kind of complicated work that's being done to drive a uh, uh, one of these you know theoretical type displays, and and the pulsar works because it's actually four separate quadrants. Uh, you know, four separate panels being independently driven, and those are fused together to make a larger screen. Well, so, so you're saying like some producers are going to choose to standardize at like eight thousand nits. Is that is that sort of um, not not at eight thousand? Um, you know, we, we multiple thousands. Well, we we have you know one thousand right now. We the you know, there there have yeah. been two thousand nit displays, and then you know we have the four thousand nit pulsar display i guess what i'm saying is like why would you want to display that bright when like if i'm like in a room like that's kind of like not even dark and my tv is like so bright that i can't look at it well so what would be the point of like having a tv that's any brighter than that well the, the the difference here is that in hdr we're not defining what a a average you know like 90 percent reflectant white should be that will still be theoretically around the same brightness as it was in SDR, but now we have so much more range on the high end for dealing with specular highlights or blown out skies. You know, uh, data outside of uh, you know our 
you know, our localized scene, like let's say we're inside an office building and we have a darker scene in there, but we have a bright window. Theoretically, you could now have detail in that exposure, but also have the same kind of perceptual experience as you would if you were actually in that office room. Well, that's, that's of, like kind of relates to like something I was watching because I was watching The Crown just to mm-hmm. see what it looked like in, in HDR. And there was like these scenes where it's like lit by the windows from outside. And I'm just like, I'm like cringing. Like I'm like putting my hand in front of my face. I'm like hoping that she doesn't walk by the window. Um, that, that's that been my experience too. And that certainly uh, is, is worth a philosophical discussion of uh, whether having that kind of real to life experience of, you know, not really being able to focus on someone's face because they're, you know, kind of eclipsing this hot, you know, this really, really bright background. You know, yes, that's what it would be like if you were really in that room with them, but is that really what's best for film and television? Uh, that right, is definitely like put on sunglasses every time there's like a outdoor scene. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, certainly something that's debatable from our, on an artistic level, you know, for, for years, we've been packing whatever kind of dynamic range we got from a film negative or from a high-end digital camera like an Alexa or a RED uh, or one of the Sony cameras. Those are high dynamic range cameras. It's not that we've been choosing to clip some of that dynamic range when we display it on TV. We've actually been tone mapping it so that we're artistically creating a, a, an image on an, a low dynamic range or a, a standard dynamic range TV that gives us the feeling of that original scene. That doesn't mean that it's the same experience as you know not being able to focus on someone because the background is so bright. We're in t- yeah, we're creatively tone mapping that, so we still have that detail outside, but it's not overwhelmingly bright. And that's been a fundamental part of photography for a hundred years now, because anytime you're making a a print or I- any kind of rendering of a photograph. It is not in the same high dynamic range, uh, you know, you know, photometric uh, world as the original scene was. No piece of paper can exhibit the same kind of dynamic range that an outdoor scene did. Uh, so you have to artistically translate it to something to give people the artistic you know, impression of what that was. And now we're kind of on this weird cusp of, you know, being able to you know either continue down the artistic route. And, and choose not to have such high highlights or say, no, we actually want this to be as photometrically accurate to the original scene as possible. We want to put someone, you know, in that real situation. We want, you know, if, if you're, if you're in the interview chair and someone's got a big bright light at you, we want the audience to feel yeah. that kind of pressure. You know, someone could artistically, you know, make, make an argument for that. Um, yeah. It just seems very different when it's like, like viewing the TV is like unpleasantly bright is just such an unusual experience. Like I've like never experienced before. Cause like I'm used to like going into a movie theater and actually uh, we might talk about the same kind of idea later is like when I go into a movie theater, it's like so dim I can barely see anything and it hurts my eyes like the other way. Mm-hmm. So like I mean, the opposite experience of just being like, ah, yeah. Like I, I think that um, HDR, you know, can satisfy a number of different, creative requirements from filmmakers but i think that most most consumers would benefit from slightly brighter uh, uh tvs at home with a nice contrast ratio which means you know the ratio between 
highlights and the darkest blacks. Um, so having those deep blacks, but also, you know, pretty, pretty nice highlights, having that dynamic range, you know, is what allows you to watch a TV, uh, during the daytime without blacking out all your windows, having slightly brighter TVs, which most, most TVs are, we, we, we estimate that, uh, most standard dynamic range TVs are probably in the 200 to 300 nit range in most people's homes because they're viewing it in, you know, daytime, you know, or they're viewing it with the lights on because they're doing things around the house. They don't have, you know, most people do not have a dedicated home theater. Right. So most people benefit from that. Uh, at the movie theater level, you know, mo- you know, the standard, uh, you know, standard dynamic range DLP projector when properly calibrated is 48 nits, which is a little less than half of what we grade for on a uh, calibrated uh, home, t- home TV. But then again, we, we're calibrating, you know, that home TV in a dim or dark room rather than a theater, which should be a 0%, you know, surround illumination. Right. You know, we aim for like a 1% uh, surround for uh, home, for home, uh, home v- uh, viewing uh, or a 0% surround, you know, just pitch black for a movie theater. And of course you have exit signs and other right. things that kind of pollute that a little bit, but in an ideal situation, that projector, you know, you would see that screen and nothing else. So in those cases, we're dealing with uh, an issue of contrast ratio as well, because even though you're in a darker room, so yes, that 48 nits means a little bit more. It's it's going to appear brighter because you're in a darker room. The black point of traditional DLP projectors is not that great. It's not nearly as deep as what we see from uh, you know good uh, good plasmas or from the newer OLEDs, which have a really deep black point, which is you know, so dark that it's you know, impossible to tell whether it's actually on or not. You, know, right. you could display a, a, a black field on a, a mo- modern OLED, and it would be indistinguishable from the TV being off. Right. How, did, how I guess, maybe we should steer towards like some of the like creative aspects of it, because I know I was talking to Greg um, off the air, and he was sort of... Like, I don't shoot HDR. I don't think about HDR. You shouldn't even watch, like, the HDR versions of things. Like, Greg, like, what, do you, what what's your view on, on the yeah. whole thing? And Andrew as well, since you've uh, I been think, shooting movies. Yeah, I think Andrew might have some things to say about it, too. Uh, I, I think HDR is cool. I think, uh, you know, a colorist or a DP or... Or whoever is kind of like thinking about HDR doesn't shouldn't always have to be like oh we should just use it to the limit every scene or you know I think what like what's interesting to me is yeah a little bit more highlight range is great I think to me always uh, you know having more detail in the shadows like the lower range is more important like with an OLED um, there's just a lot more steps in the shadows I think than there are in like plasmas and then with like an LCD you're completely screwed because I mean, they do have like local dimming technology to make stuff darker yeah. artificially, kind of. But you know, you're just working with a black point level that's that's elevated, and and so I think, from in my perspective, I you know, you really want to be able to see into the shadows. Um, and as far as like you know, ha- how bright things get, I mean, it's almost I like an really, effect at some I mean, point. It's kind right? of it's like cool. sort of like three D in a way. It's an effect. And like, how do you meter that? It's an effect. It's it's. Uh, 
it, yeah, you don't get to do as much. Like, I, I mean, I kind of like the idea of, you know, in, in SDR, we just do kind of like a highlight roll off and it looks nice. It looks like a, a, you know, an impressionistic painting or something. And, you know, when you do HDR, oftentimes it's very, it's, you know, much more true to life. What does what is, what is a highlight you know, roll off mean? Tashi said at this point, but, oh, just like, you know, there's a lot of uh, detail in the highlights that you uh, kind of, you can't really, you know, you, you cram it together at the top range of the brightness of your, you know, display, mm-hmm. um, right? Does anyone want to comment on that? I mean, that's pretty much what I would call highlight roll-off. You kind of have this, this these highlights in, in your image, and in, in order to make your, your image contrasty and look nice, you kind of have to roll off the highlights in a way, or else you start to clip stuff or, you know... Basically yeah, and, nice. and what a lot of people have, you know, for a long time associated as a video look is when you have uh, dynamic range, which is clipped on display, yeah, you know, because you have a camera uh, that that may have been able to capture more of the scene, and your display cannot, or a camera that is actually maxing out its dynamic range. You just have a hard clip at the top, so the exposure just increases, you know, in a perceptually linear way, and then it just flattens out, and you have you know, clipped white uh, skies or crushed shadows, you know, with no detail. Right. And, and so, so like clipped highlights are like highly associated with like a video look. Yes. And, and so, you know, even if we are producing video content with a you know, modern digital cinema camera or, you know, coming from film, you know, we have an S-shaped contrast function. And what that does is that allows us to let those highlights softly roll off and those shadows softly roll down. And, and that has a more filmic look because all of our film print stocks have always had an S shaped function in them. So when people are nostalgic for that kind of film look in there, they're arguing for a film look versus a video look. This is really a major contributing factor to that you know, perception. And that is, that's how, uh, you know, uh, photo, uh, printing has worked for a long time too, you know, doing darkroom printing, those, uh, print stocks in that photo paper has an S shaped response curve to it. It takes a certain amount of, uh, photon energy before you actually start getting an exposure on that paper. And then you kind of hit a linear, step in the middle and then at a certain point it starts tapering off and as much light as you put into it it's just not gonna you know expose a brighter patch on that uh on on that uh or uh on on that print so uh, oh yeah go ahead and i think i was gonna say well i was just gonna loop back to what you're kind of i think i kind of missed your your original question about this i mean basically i i think i i generally am not thinking about HDR when I'm monitoring on set and it's it's expensive to do that and especially for lower budget features you know you're working with an SDR monitor you don't always have the best lighting conditions on your I guess monitor. what's interesting actually uh, now that you, you say know, that is just... it's like you're not um thinking about it on set in the sense that like there's not like necessarily new equipment needed to capture HDR content is, is that right well you might expose you might you might decide to expose okay. differently or you might decide to say oh you know pass on to post you know you should probably like not use the full you should probably roll off the the these windows or else they're going to be extraordinarily bright you know that's something that's obviously going to be discovered later when you're doing your 
you know, you're you're doing your finishing, and, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, those are going to look really bright in HDR until, unless you do something. But in terms of about capture, like, really, yeah, in terms of capture, though, you don't have to roll out a special camera. It's just mainly you want to be able to see what you're doing if possible. Right. Right. And the- yeah, and I, I mean, honestly, uh, I, I know most people now. I mean, except for large movies. I mean. You're not going. You're not going to do your master as an HDR master. You're probably going to be doing your grading for what your typical destination is going to be, which is either theatrical or home video. And so this HDR thing is kind of like it. You know, it's becoming more prominent. You know, I know Netflix is is doing a big push for that with their post pipeline. Is like do HDR mastering, um, and then we'll do an SD derive an SDR master from the HDR um, version, but um, you know, it seems to me like all these people are kind of, you know, it's, it's still kind of like an afterthought and, and, and something that, you know, a lot, a lot of times the HDR version looks worse because of various different reasons, but probably because it wasn't really thought of. They weren't thinking about that first. They were thinking about the SDR. And it's, SDR it's very hard to shoot for HDR when you know you're also going to be making an SDR deliverable. It's not there, there. There hasn't been a case where there's a movie that has only been released in HDR, and maybe down the road, you know, who knows? Maybe HDR will become the de facto standard, and regular gamma referred imagery as we're used to it, and SDR will no longer be a thing, and we're only doing HDR. At that at that point, maybe you know, we'll have a little bit more a, a different uh, philosophy. Then is that because sort of like the decisions you might make on set based on like. The, the highlights or whatever would be like sort of mutually exclusive. Well, right. It's kind of hard. Like you can't really do anything about the bright windows. And, it's, and I don't even know if you would like for I'm an, just S, bright an windows SDR as an example, but you need to like it. Yeah. And that's like, well, so if, if you're shooting a movie, right, like you're going to have these certain conditions where like, yes, a lot of times we, we can get away with things in SDR because we, can roll off the highlights of the windows that you can blow out those windows or get close to blowing out and it looks nice even though you have really shadowy stuff in the foreground because it's not this like super bright thing that you're looking at it's 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 more pleasing to your eyes with hdr it's kind of like i mean you can obviously just replicate that you can just make hd an sdr you make an hdr master that looks exactly like the sdr right but if you want to like use more of that brightness use you know more of that range you can kind of open that up and then then you start to have these you know huge despair scenes with huge disparate contrasts you know or, you know we have really dark shadows and really bright highlights we do that all the time in movies when we're shooting and for SDR it's totally fine but for HDR it's not and really you can't do anything about it that much i mean you can like light up the interior of the room or like oh, we just want to reduce the contrast or whatever but you know i guess with hdr if, if you're really focusing on an hdr finish you can finesse that later so like if you were if you were shooting uh, something that was like know, you what, knew for whatever reason it was only going to be viewed in hdr you would like would you like those tools well, like available to you i don't I don't know. I mean, I think it, I, I think mean, I definitely. I don't would. know. Tashi, well, if you if think? you were shooting something that's, that's exclusively HDR content, or um, the majority of exhibition will be in HDR, it would make sense to have a onset monitoring uh, and viewing pipeline that is in HDR. It may not be at four thousand nits as you might master. You might have a thousand nit studio display, but something that you know you can reliably you know, look at and see the, the, that the end result of an HDR pipeline, 
that would be beneficial to DPs to see, okay, yeah, like, the, you know, this, this contrast ratio is a little bit too heavy here. But that's also, to, you know, like that, that's for someone who is making their creative decisions looking at the monitor. You know, I think what I'd have to do on set is like I would take, you know, I, I would basically have to create a few different looks like on, like on set looks that are like, OK, this is for a scene with really high contrast. Like I'd have like a HDR LUT that would like really basically roll off the highlights at a certain point. That you know, but if we're having if I'm shooting a night exterior, and I want the like the sodium vapor lights in the background to be really bright. Like I might use a different type of mm-hmm. look for that scene, because you know I guess basically you have this budget you're working with of like contrast ratio. If if you have a really high contrast scene, like the scene that you're shooting is super high contrast, like to your eyes, yeah, you, know, you know you might want to actually reduce the 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 peak white. Point, I guess, uh, in viewing or else you're going to, you know, right. Gonna and screen area out. is certainly an important factor here too. If, if you have a night exterior and in the background, there's one bright pinprick of light that hits 800 nits or a thousand nits. I mean, you're you're going to see it, but it's not going to be blinding. Now, if you have a day exterior yeah. scene yeah. and the sky is all at 600, 700 nits, that could be a little overwhelming. So a lot of it is going to have to is going to rely on composition and just the nature of those scenes. One really important thing to take into account here too is that even whether we're producing SDR content or HDR content, the digital cinema cameras are still the same. We're still capturing in the same way because these cameras have always been high have always been high dynamic range. Any of the modern, you know, high-end digital cinema cameras, the Alexa, the uh Red uh and the Sony cameras Canon as well, Panasonic, you know, any of their cinema, you know, variety of cameras are all high dynamic range. These are cameras that are shooting with anywhere from 12 to, you know, maybe 15 uh, or possibly 16 stops of measurable latitude. Whereas our at-home SDR TVs are usually hitting about a uh, a 10 stop uh, range. So kind of that barrier, anything above 10 stops, I would call HDR. Um, Andrew, you said that you would like those tools. Like, are there particular things that you would have liked to do in HDR or see in HDR? I know when yeah. I was yeah, asking so I mean, you about remastering your movie, you uh, didn't seem to want it, which made me very upset. No, I, I just, watch it on my I'm TV. just, I'm, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think it, I, I definitely like. I think I don't have a whole lot of exposure to HDR. I haven't seen a whole. I, I just don't have my TV hooked up for it, and. I really my only exposure to it has been like Dolby laser projection and then like some stuff at NAB and that's about it. So I don't, I don't have a huge amount of experience with this, but I think um, I've seen some stuff that I don't like, but it's mainly just a poor use of HDR. Um, It's not like HDR requires you you to look, well, I think I've seen things that have like a perfect black point that maybe in real life wouldn't be completely black. And then Hmm. like, contrast in a scene that maybe would be that way but you i don't want to look at it that that way in this setting because it's like you said blinding and i think those are not like inherent situations of hdr you can use the dynamic range you can allocate it as you please to a certain extent and it's just a matter of doing that in a way that matches what you're trying to achieve just like i mean they made color back in the day and so everything had to be colorful for a while until people realized like oh we can actually tone this down and maybe like use it in a way that makes sense yeah we're we're definitely experiencing a uh 
uh, Natalie Kalmus phenomenon. Uh, Natalie Kalmus was a uh, executive at Technicolor uh, in the, uh, I believe, in the forties um, and into the fifties with uh, when the Technicolor three strip process was perfected. Um, she was kind of, uh, you know, feared and hated by the studios and the the filmmakers for coming on to set and saying, no, you can't use that color. You have to use this color uh, because she was the representative there to make sure that Technicolor's process was being used to its maximum effect that, uh, you know, customers and, you know, audience, you know, uh, for the films would see the most color that could possibly be produced using that technology. And we're in that same kind of situation now as we were in uh, when 3D came, you know, you know, kind of, you know, hit its upswing in 2009 with, uh, with Avatar. After that, we had a series of films that would try to be the most 3D they possibly could. And that meant, you know, special effects, axes, blood, you know, flying at the screen, you know, just doing everything it could to remind you you're watching a 3D movie and this is as 3D as it can possibly be. You have manufacturers saying, you know, please do that. We want to show off this technology. We want this to all be worth it. We want people to get their their money's worth, quote unquote. And we're seeing the same thing with HDR where, you know, film, filmmakers might say, well, this scene is supposed to be muddy. It's supposed to be low contrast. I, I want it to feel murky. And you have manufacturers saying, well, but you're not using enough HDR. You know, let's, let's maximize that. And so you have it coming from manufacturers. You also have it coming from producers who might say, we need to get, you know, a good reaction out of people. And if they feel we're not making this 3D enough or eye-popping enough with HDR, they're going to say, well, why, Blame the why, why, did, why, did we, why did we pay a premium for this? Why did we pay for a $20 ticket instead of the $15 or you know, $13 ticket? Uh, why did we pay that extra money? We didn't get anything different. So you have manufacturers leading the charge here because they're driving the business model right now. It's not being driven by the creative so much. And, and just, you know, 3D, you know, had that peak there and then it kind of tapered off. We have much more responsible use of 3D in any of the major films, you know, pr- produced by Disney, you know, Star Wars, Jungle Book, um, any of the animated films coming out, DreamWorks and Pixar are, are very responsibly and tastefully done. It's still 3D, but it's not, it's not in a gimmick way, kind of like some of the, uh, you know, like the Resident Evil 3D or, or uh, I don't know, well, um, Silent Hill 3D where you have... Put on your 3D glasses yeah. now. <laughs> um, well, it's sort of interesting because, like, that is an interesting effect that it's, like, the same kind of, like, pressure for, like, color and uh, HDR and 3D. But, like, you don't quite see that exactly the same way with 4K, I guess, because it's just, like, not impossible. It's, like, not really possible to... I think 4K like, is just has essentially no artistic implications. I mean, maybe that's right. nearsighted, but like, it, well, that's it, does, it just doesn't it. really. Also, most people can't see it. Like, almost everyone yeah. is watching an environment or with eyes that cannot see it. I'll no. tell you, I like looking at those 4K HDR uh, screensavers on the Apple TV. That is the number one best yeah. content. I mean, if you can't see it, it's good. I suppose we should probably stop talking about HDR because I'm gonna I'm gonna lose it. But. Um, <laughs> There, there is this one note that I wrote down that's kind of interesting. Um, like Vimeo is starting to roll out HDR and wide color, like so you can upload your videos in in HDR and wide color, which again Andrew has not done, despite the fact that I want to watch his movie in that format. I'll do um, it. <laughs> this is browbeat you into well, doing it's, it. The part of it is that's all it the took. problem that a lot of people are having is that I don't have a great way of mastering it for that. I do have a technically HDR television that I can use, and it'll probably look similar on your TV as it does on mine. But 
Um, That's fine. It can be graded specifically for my TV. Sure, yeah, I could do that. Uh, But I think just the fact that the artists who might be doing good stuff with these things haven't been exposed to the tools, and in fact, half the time, even if their movie is in HDR, they weren't even there when it made that transition. Those are the two factors that are making everything look crappy that everyone is seeing in HDR, and... Uh, pile that on top of the fact that no one really knows what HDR means, and then it's just a mess. So come back in five years, and I think we'll have yeah. actually some pretty impressive... Because, I mean, HDR can make a lot of things... I think artistically it's a far more significant advancement than 4K because you can... If you have something that can output a lot of brightness in a very small spot, you can do things where you have like a nighttime exposure of city lights, and all the city lights are really bright, but everything else is exactly the brightness it should be, you know, dark and... Uh, you can see in its right. shadow detail and all that. Like all that stuff is really important, I think, to making things like that feel n- as they do in real life. Because currently, you can't really represent that in an SDR context. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that you have to blow out windows and make people like squint their eyes and like crunch all the blacks where it sh- they shouldn't be totally black and things like that, like they do now, to make sure that you know the technology is working for you. Um, so you know. Kind of in conclusion, HDR is a rather complicated, multifaceted topic with a lot of different uh, technical aspects and creative and philosophical aspects that are kind of uh, you know, slowly you know, emerging and, and coming into question here. And it's going to be some time before filmmakers, producers, engineers all have a consensus on what the best ways to handle HDR are and you know, what that ramification is for uh, the, uh, uh, you know, eventual audience. Um, so it's definitely something that we're going to talk about in more detail later on. Uh, yeah, I have no doubt that we will be back on this topic. Yeah. There's, there's always more to talk about with HDR. All right. So the main topic we wanted to talk about tonight was, uh, just sort of where and how do you watch movies and has that been changing with, I don't know, streaming? Is that like a corny thing to say? Do I sound like a dad? Like a dad, yeah. Like, hey, kids, did you hear about Netflix? What's on the stream? Yeah. Um, But, like, I don't know. I feel like my viewing habits have definitely been changing over the last, like, three or four years. Maybe it's because I've been not doing filmmaking stuff and I don't know what movies are coming out or whatever. Um, But just generally, like, how how you watch movies, the technology at the theater versus at home, that kind of thing. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I for some reason I feel like I should just jump in here, Will. Um I was just thinking about this because I think, you know, a couple months ago I, I just uh started watching movies again in a the theater. And it was really just because of movie pass. And um, you know, I, I'm not sure why. It's just basically you you no longer have this for me at least, I, I don't have this um restraint uh because I don't wanna you know, I don't wanna risk uh, it not being good because I don't basically I don't want to spend money on a movie that is like maybe mediocre or I think might be mediocre. It's kind of like basically that just it just gets, gets removed when I use Movie Pass because I just pay ten dollars a month and I can see every movie basically. Well, that's interesting because that's kind of like the same sort of like value proposition or whatever as like actual just Netflix, right? Where you're like, ah, it's all sort of included, so I might as well watch this movie. And I don't have. I to don't it. have the same it, feeling as Netflix, though. I think when I'm, you know, for new movies, new movies somehow feel different. You know, it's fresh, it's new, everyone's watching it. You know, and having kind of just this pass that allows you to to see it at no additional cost. 
and well, no risk. Netflix has new content too. Yeah, they do, I, but it's just not really as prominent in the news. You don't hear about it. You don't see it. I mean, you know, maybe the the bigger things you hear about, but there's tons of conflict, uh, tons of content being unleashed on onto Netflix, and no one hears about it. Yeah, like I, I think that the taking the pain of pain out of it is a key key part of any subscription based service. You know, it's you know, you're you're going to have more people paying a monthly price for you know HBO than if you had to you know have them pay for each individual show on a pay per view basis. You know, just the act of having to pay for things, regardless of the actual payment amount, even if it adds up to be the same. That is a hindrance for people, just the, you know, the hassle and then also just the psychological pain of paying uh, is, is, a, is definitely a thing there. Um, for me, the yeah, reason not to go see movies in theaters has not really been about the pain of paying and the, the money associated with it and whether or not you know, that was you know, a worthwhile spend, you know, spend. It's really more for me about time and if it's a movie I'm on, you know, on the fence about, I don't know if it's you know, really going to be all that good. Do I really want to go waste, you know, two hours, you know, plus, you know, driving, parking, and then, you know, you know, leaving and, you know, driving home and just, you know, all that extra hassle for something that I'm not even that excited about. That's usually why I don't go see a movie in a theater. Uh, it's usually not the, you know, whatever the price tag is. It, it, I feel it'd be the same thing, whether it was a $5 movie or a $15 movie. It's just the time and effort you spend. That's kind of, detracting from me wanting to go out to the theater. So, I mean, I, I usually don't go to that many movies. I got movie pass, probably doubled the number of movies I go to, which is still not, not that many, but it's kind of funny that mo- going to a movie is essentially free for me now. And I still don't do that often. I, I mean, I like doing it, but my TV at home looks better and it's more comfortable and I can eat stuff for free. So yeah, like I, <laughs> you, you eat free food in your house Chocolate. somehow. <laughs> Yes. He's a free gun, getting free food. Yeah, I, I want access to this free food. Yeah, I, I think that most of the movies I go to see in a theater are tentpole kind of things. Like, I mean, let's be honest, we're all going to see Star Wars tomorrow or this weekend or whatever. I feel like Star Wars is like the first movie I'm going to see in a theater in 2017. No, like you, you're getting in right at the That's finish line. pretty messed up, um, yeah, man. But, uh, you know, it's, it's those kind of things where you know everyone's going to talk about it, so you have to see it sooner rather than later. Or... If I know this is going to be a funny movie and we're all going to enjoy it together, then like I'll go, I'll, I'll go do that. Like you know, I saw three billboards with a group of like seven or eight people, and we had a great time watching it. But if it's a super heavy, serious movie, I feel like I'm generally more interested in watching that on my own or with like one person who's you know really invested in it. I don't need a theater going experience to see something like that. I um, do. I, I definitely think it's. I definitely think that there's a lot of value in having something, some kind of experience where you can go and like enjoy it with other people outside of your house. But somehow movies don't do a great job of that anymore because you can see them in your home. Well, it's like people go to a coffee shop to write a script uh, yeah. rather than go there, do that in their own home because they want to concentrate. I have the same problem. For me, I, I find that I can only concentrate um fully on a movie when i'm in a theater or something like a theater where i feel socially obligated to not pull out my cell phone um and it's just like a social contract thing everyone's just like you don't pull out your cell phone 
of course people do it, but I don't know, to me, uh, you know, having that barrier, um, I don't know, it just allows me to concentrate and, and, and just, it's a, it's a super valid excuse too. I can just tell people like mm-hmm. I'm in a movie. I was in a movie. Sorry. Um, sure. Yeah. Like that. No, that's a perfectly valid point. Um, they need do not disturb while watching a movie on your phone. Yeah. You know, automatically when you're near a theater, it just, it just auto <laughs> auto texts yeah, everyone, you know, it just detects like an AMC SSID and just boom, your phone doesn't work. Yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, I, I was trying to kind of equate it to like people go to a coffee shop to write a script because they want to concentrate. I think it's a similar thing. Like you bring yourself to a spot where into a room where, you know, you basically don't want to work in your in your home on work. It's hard because, I mean, obviously people have home offices. I just feel like you don't want to sit on your couch and try to work on something. You want to sit in an office, like an area that's designated, that means something to you in your mind. Like you can compartmentalize it and say, this is where I'm going to work. This is where I'm going to not work. This yeah. is where I'm going well, to but, and concentrate beyond, and watch a movie. I think it's weird because... I think it's weird because uh, there's now no technology gap between the theater and your home. In fact, the home is better for most people. And yeah, that's sort that, of what like, I was going to say. I think that I, it definitely takes away from like wanting to go to a theater, even though everything about the theater experience is better, except maybe <laughs> the picture. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, it's not better because like the movie looks worse. Right, but it's like, weird that it hasn't like continued to. I don't know. It, it basically it let the home experience outpace it somehow, which is kind of strange. Well, and, and that's the uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of the Dolby Vision uh, reaction at the the theater level. So, you know, Dolby Vision in a theater, you know, we might call extended dynamic range. You know, re- kind of replicates the same contrast ratio that we get out of a TV and a you know good SDR setting at home. So now you're looking at a TV that's you know 50 feet wide instead of you know, three or four feet wide. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're that, that is catching up there. But... but I think it's, uh, you think you need a lot more than that. Like the, whatever, whatever IMAX was like to the people of the seventies is what we need now. And... I mean, I feel like honestly what it is, is that the, the theater needs uh, like a uh, table service. Well, they have those. I mean, they, I know, but they like, I feel those, like I would go distracting. all distracting. Like, like, like what one person wants, like, you know, like th- this is why, you know, years ago, you know, there's that, thing where they're saying like, oh, we're going to have special seats that are like kind of domed over for people who, who want to tweet every part of the movie. It's like <laughs> people are going to movies for different reasons. Some people want to go and only focus on the movie and like not talk to other people. Other people want to go so they can like jab and like make jokes with their friends. Other people want to, you know, be Twitter journalists about the movie in real time. Like, you know, some people, you know, some people like it because, oh, there are all these other people here. This is a social thing. Other people say, I want to watch a movie from home because I hate all the other people. I, I don't want to hear people crunching popcorn in my ear. I don't want people talking or being near me. Like everyone has a different objective. The only common objective is I want to see this movie. So if the technology barrier is gone, then it's really just, do you want to see it with other people at a theater, you know, under their conditions, which means you play by those rules and you put up with their crap or do you do it at home where you're in complete control, but you're on your own. And, you know, now people can finally decide that, which means, yeah, we might see a decrease in, you know, movie theater, you know, going, um, 
but you know, we might also see people say, you know, I, I missed something about the theater. There was something special there. I don't get that at home. I'm constantly looking at my phone. I'm constantly distracted. Um, you know, there's something about going to a movie theater and that movie isn't going to stop for anybody. And you need to kind of go through a ritual. You get there, you go to the bathroom right before the movie, you go in and you know, I'm going to miss something if I leave this. So I'm going to sit here. I'm going to tolerate it all the way through this movie. Whereas you're at home and you can just, you, you can stop it whenever you, you, you are, it's, it's either, are you in control or are you, you know, allowing this to be an, like a shared experience? And I think it's just going to come down to people deciding what they like more, not a, uh, you know, a technology issue. I don't think that technology is what's going to drive. Uh, yeah, maybe not. But I, th- what I think what I mean by that is like, no one is wishing they could watch like Book of Mormon in their living room. Like they go to the theater and they ha- they watch the actors because that's what the content is. It's like not translatable to their living room. Well, it's it's quite and possible no... that there are people who do though. Like there are a lot of people who live nowhere near a Book of Mormon. You know, uh, people definitely you know, sure. pirate though, like handy cam footage of yeah. Like, I plays mean, and you stuff. could do it's that, but it's like you you don't have an option. And the whole point of it is to see live people doing a real thing. But with movies, it's for a long time now you've been able to do it just as well or better in home, and there hasn't been like a paradigm shift. Well, like, what do you think about the like best the, music uh... movie experience I've had? Probably was uh, Dunkirk in an IMAX like projection, and it was great. But that's a forty-five-year-old experience. <laughs> like sure. there's there's nothing new. Uh, how how do you feel about the Fathom Events stuff where they'll I've actually never seen one of those. Yeah, you know, like, the, well, the, I, I haven't either, but the idea of it's interesting that, yeah. you know, there is a live recording of a show somewhere, I, I assume not in front of an audience, maybe in front of an audience, but on that night and at that time only, you can go to the theater and watch too. And that means that you can watch something that's just simply not playing live in your area, but it's still a live event. There's no other screening of it. It's a one-time only deal. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's cool, but I, it's... Uh, I mean, I think everyone would prefer to see the live performance of of a play, whereas a movie, there is no real advantage to seeing it in a theater other than sort of these ancillary aspects. That well, depend depending on the quality of the seats you get, you might be seeing a better experience, you know, in the theater than you are well in, in the movie theater than you would in the uh, the play theater. Yeah, I'd but argue like you almost always are getting a better I'm viewing sure are, experience with a with a like a telecast. Than, yeah, it's the and, same with sports. But people still go to sports. Like they go to the bowl game because they want to be there. Right. It's exciting. You're you're there with other people, and it's um, and somehow that aspect well, doesn't it, work it's, as well. It, well it's it's considered theater, more authentic. Like you went in the to room. the play rather than. It, it, in the, I think it's sort of authentic, but like obviously the the actual actors are there, but also like. The the whole experience is like nicer in uh, like a stage theater. I think if you're going to like a Broadway show or something, it's like oh, there's like a really nice opulent theater, and there's tons and tons of people, and everyone's like excited, and there's like a buzz, and you get a little book, and it's like uh, you go to a movie theater, and there's like one guy in there, like everything's like dark and sort of depressing, and like leather and well, you, gross. You wait till this this weekend. Uh, your your every single screening of Star Wars is going to be packed with people. Yeah, well, that's actually what yeah, I like. I mean, like Star Wars is the exception. That, that's still fun. Uh, yeah, it's super fun to go see it. Like, oh no, like I hate like that it. Like <laughs> uh, yeah. I hate that. That's You're my Oh yeah, yeah, the Millennium Falcon. Oh well, yeah, Solo. <laughs> like, Yay! Yeah, everyone's gonna like it. Remember the time, like with the Star Wars, the Stormtroopers. It's just like that. 
Yeah. Well, but, but 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 let's take that. Like, what's the converse of that? Like, let's say it was a, a Coen Brothers movie, and Joel and Ethan Coen came on, on the screen, the other names, and everyone they all clapped, or at the end of the movie, everyone claps. Like, I, yeah, I guess Greg, it's, I think it's, you're just upset it's a, the fan base. It, it's a limited fandom, you know, for for something like the Coen Brothers. But people do the same kind of stuff in you know limited quantities. But when it's something everybody's doing it. Is it is that the threshold to it being annoying or no? Like Tarantino movies, uh, Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, if anyone's like getting all giddy because it was like a Tarantino moment rather than like it was actually a good like I don't I don't know. But isn't that what happens in any Tarantino movie? Like you know, someone kills the bad guy and the whole theater starts clapping in the middle of the movie. Like, isn't that the same kind of thing? Probably. But like yeah. that's like for me like you know, watching Hateful Eight I, I forget who somebody gets blown away like I, whoa it, hold on I haven't seen Hateful Eight don't spoil it uh, something happens and uh, everyone was just like applauding and kind of laughing out loud in the theater and it and it was like this group catharsis where like at home sure you're gonna have a little bit of that feeling but just like watching like comedy you know it somehow escalated and amped up when everybody feels that together and that's something yeah. i think you can only get in a theater yeah that's but true. you know it's also something that people you know intentionally avoid going to a theater for so basically i, I think the conclusion you know my, my my point on it is that everybody's going to see a movie with slightly different objectives but the one common thing is they all want to go see that movie well i mean yeah that's the that's the reason everybody goes is cuz you have to i i feel like you know, or at least like, you know, like if you if everyone's watching Netflix, like that you can all watch it in your own individual way, and you could invite a ton of people over, or whatever, like to watch Game of Thrones. Now and I, you I, get like a lot of that social experience. But I, like the reason I go to the movie theater is like the movie is coming out on that day, and yeah, I kind of like you know being there with the crowd or Star Wars or whatever. But like I'm going there so I can see the movie. Well, and I wonder like if. You know, if 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 any of these movies weren't coming out on home video, let's say it was a theatrical run only, then it goes into the vault at you know the studio and, and doesn't come out for thirty years, would I rush out and see all of them? I still probably would not. You know, there are a lot of movies. Like most of the Oscar contenders last year, I didn't see because you know they they looked like they were probably good movies, but I just wasn't particularly interested in their subject matter. And you know, I if someone told me today I have like no opportunity to watch those movies again, I'd say, well, you yeah, know, okay. Um, you know, someone will tell me about them or I can read about them. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm with, I get out. Everyone told me to see get out and I watched it at home and I loved it, but it's absolutely a movie I preferred to have seen in my living room. So, uh, one of the questions I had for you guys is, uh, what, how do you feel about the current like trend in, you know, different studios having different streaming platforms, you know, before it kind of seemed like, well, there's like Netflix and like there's Hulu you know, for like TV stuff. And now it's like you have HBO go, you have like a Showtime, you know, option. You have different studios coming up with their own options. We have CBS all access, uh, Disney's starting their own for all of the Disney, you know, proper, you know, Disney studios titles. Um, and so they're pulling those out from Netflix. Like, how do you guys feel that we're going to a model where, you know, a lot of people have cut the cord from cable and now they're going to just end up having subscriptions to multiple streaming vendors. Well, it seems to me like that. you, you know, obviously for the studio, it's advantageous to have their own streaming service. They get a lot more money out of it. No, of course. And, and for, yeah, for the I, consumer, don't how you could... they don't want that. I think that's right. probably 
I, I personally, I'm totally fine paying a fee for a show that I watch, but I want to do it on a platform where I don't have to maintain all these logins and like look at all these other terrible shows that I don't want to watch mm -hmm. on their service and like go find the app every time. That kind of stuff is annoying, but yeah. I'm fine paying for like, I want to watch Game of Thrones. I pay $5 a month for that. Great. Right. I don't know how you work in consumer retention in that model, but. Well, so so would you rather a model where you're paying for a subscription to that season of the show? I think I would. Yeah, I mean, HBO? you can do that on iTunes for some stuff. Like I did that for right, Rick but, and Morty. Yeah. Oh, do you? I was gonna say like I feel like nobody does the thing where they subscribe to the show on iTunes because like they feel like it costs too much. I mean, it does cost too much, but I did it because I really like Rick and Morty, and I think the other option was like the Adult Swim app, which I I just hated so much that I didn't want to use it. Yeah, I. I feel like there's kind of no other option, right? Like there's like such a clear incentive for studios to make their own streaming service. Yeah. Like there's yeah, because they're they want to control the whole thing and they want to make as much money as possible and sure. it's kind of there's no other way. There's nothing stopping them, right? Like what before what was stopping them was like uh they don't have any idea how to do that. Um mm -hmm. or um yeah. And and now like what 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 if it wasn't an issue of paying, you know, let's say you had one app that was the aggregator for all those. And you just say, uh, you know, you have your login for that. It's got your credit card info. And you just say, I want to have the Disney option. I want the CBS option. I want the HBO option, but I don't need the Showtime option. And they'd say, okay, that's $10, $10, $10. Okay, you get billed $40 a month. Well, they kind of do that. Like Amazon Prime does that because you can have Amazon Prime streaming right. and be like, I want to add Showtime and mm -hmm. I want to add HBO and I want to add now, other things. Do you find that more attractive? Because it's it's not an issue of you know paying extra for each network, but it's actually the simplifying of you know, not having multiple logins, multiple apps, having to deal with all the extra overhead personally yeah. like having I think all that would solve in. it for me i mean apple tried to do that uh with the tv app but it doesn't quite work well netflix uh, isn't on there which yeah they're never going to go on there well, so. and also yeah, these companies have like to say, participate oh, like, continue playing atlanta in. it just doesn't do anything right of course and i you know i think amazon's kind of leading the charge on that you know and i think that's a under you know an undermarketed product at the moment like you know a lot of a lot of their products don't get quite as much uh marketing um, you know, I'm not aware of most of them uh, unless uh, you know someone directly tells me about them. Well, I mean, Amazon Prime also like just showed up on the Apple TV, and it's a terrible app. It's like awful. That's the uh, other. It's not even a native a app. It doesn't feel like a native apps. app. Like Hulu's app was unusable for a while. I think Amazon. Yeah, like Amazon's the, app is like we all had you know issues native. with HBO Go on Xbox and you know playing the wrong levels and you know in general the HBO Go player was pretty terrible. Oh yeah, HBO Go looks awful. Um, it's just so compressed. Um, I feel like, uh, do you think iTunes is probably the best quality or Netflix? Um, well, yeah. well, Netflix is definitely very open about their, yeah, like the work they're doing to maximize quality. I think that they have the best infrastructure right at the moment. Uh, I haven't watched enough on Amazon to really compare. I imagine Amazon's I, pretty I, close in terms iTunes, of video I guess, quality. Is that what I think is the... Yeah, I, I think iTunes has the potential to be. I, I haven't watched enough content from iTunes um, to really I give think a both fair of assessment. Them, for me, I have no interest in ever using a Blu-ray if I can see it on those two platforms. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, I would much sooner, you know, watch something 
not on a Blu-ray than uh, get up and you know, put it into a PlayStation Three and I mean, do it I the bought and everything. The Force Awakens Blu-ray copy, and it came with an iTunes code, and I put in the iTunes code and watched the whole movie on iTunes, and I've never put the yeah. Blu-ray in. I think I have an unopened uh, Star Wars Force Awakens Blu-ray because I uh, have never watched it outside of the theater. Yeah, I did the you same. You should thing, open it Will. up because then it'll go on iTunes. I don't know. For me, it's just like the the video quality or the the image quality at a theater is like not great and so like that there's like no compelling reason to go um unless there's an event and now so just to clarify what about the image quality do you yeah because i don't have any of these issues with most of the projections i see I, i just think it's super dim and like Less lately, but I felt like I could like see the. What if it has something no, to do with like Santa Cruz? You you well, going to theater yeah, but I mean, I, I live Cruz. in a town, right? Right. Well, let let let's break it down though. So, um, are the movies you're seeing you know, are these particularly dark movies, or are you feeling like it's too dim even in like a day exterior? That it's too dim even in like a day exterior. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and then. As far as the resolution and your perception of that, are you noticing that mostly on titles and graphics? Or are you noticing that on, you know, like people's faces, like live action it's photography? The titles, I think. Sure. I mean, it's where it's most noticeable. I mean, you might right. notice it during some. Yeah, and, and you know, you absolutely are, are going to see that most in uh, titles, anything with, you know, sharp edges. Um, you know, kind of the, the general rule of thumb is that for a 2K projection, if you were to take the height of the screen and lay that down flat on the floor and then multiply by one and a half, that's about the, you know, the sweet spot, you know, anything closer than that, you should, you know, technically be able to perceive 2k resolution and, you know, start seeing, you know, uh, you know, noticeable, uh, pixels. Um, and you know, we, when, with most modern theaters, there's a substantial number of seats that are, that fall within that, uh, non-ideal space. Um, yeah. you know, just cause they're trying to pack so many seats in there, but in terms of just overall image quality, you know, one issue that we have at home that, you know, ha- there is no real solution to right now is every different TV, you know, is not calibrated. You know, they come from the factory with all sorts of different settings and options. Every TV manufacturer, uh, you know, has to stand out as, as much as they can at Best Buy or whatever store they're at by being the biggest, brightest, loudest TV, even if that means those colors are not natural. They're not the target colors of a particular spec. And that means that it's, you know, definitely not calibrated in theaters. We don't have that issue. You know, DLP projectors are, are inherently, you know, very linear, very, uh, consistent and are able to produce colors, you know, very reliably and require extremely little calibration. So that is like an ideal, we have a world where we have very little tolerance, like maybe like a, you know, 5% tolerance from what the, or, or I'd say even less, less than that, maybe like a 2% tolerance from what the filmmakers intended it to be. Whereas at home you could have people watching it on a dim display or a super bright display with, you know, vivid mode or sports mode on. Yeah. And you just have this wide gamut of completely random uh, calibration error. It's not systematically darker or systematically oh, brighter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a complete mess all over the place. at home or whatever, but it's like, I prefer that over like, just like a washed out, like maybe technically correct-ish image at the theater, I guess. Because um, I try to turn off all the stupid settings on my TV. I mean, I think uh, personally, I don't look at any screen that is that dark in my life. Like, 
I look at screens all day and they're all quite bright. And I think just conceptually, it feels like you're not seeing everything when the projection is not bright, even though your eyes adapt somehow. But I definitely have noticed that recently, whereas it didn't bother me, you know, eight years ago. Well, it, you know, it's, but it could certainly changed. be a... You know, it could certainly be an issue with age too. Um, like, you know, none of us are old enough that our vision is is going. Um, but you know, I've definitely noticed a decreasing tolerance to super high detailed uh, displays. You know, like I, I find myself less comfortable reading small text on a monitor than I was, you know, ten years ago. You know, ten years ago, I wanted a monitor with the highest DPI, the highest resolution, and I'd pack really tiny text in there. And now I'm just like, okay, I want to see it as big as possible so I can read it easily. Um, so eye strain's a, you know, a big factor there. There are a lot of theaters that are not necessarily hitting their target 48, you know, nit or 14 uh, foot Lambert, uh, you know, luminance target. Some of them are running the bulbs low. You know, I don't see that as much out here, but, you know, mom and pop theaters or theaters that are a little more run down, I would expect, you know, that they're trying to prolong the life of the, uh, the uh, projector lamps as long as possible. And, you know, that, that could be a factor there. I think, so I said the image quality, but I think also, like, I'm just watching movies less and less. So it's kind of, I kind of do want to get movie pass actually, and just see if I, like, watch more movies, because I, I don't tend to watch movies at home. I'll watch TV at home. Well, why, um, why but, would but even, why does why would MoviePass help you though? Because I don't know. You it's not an issue saying, of paying for it though. I'm like, not sure. There's no well, like for both me and Andrew, we have different reasons, but we both have watched more movies. I don't know. Yeah. It works. It does sound kind of interesting because I, I don't think that I really cared about the price either, but clearly I did. I guess. Well, I, I wonder if it's because it's it's something that you have at your availability now. It's like a gym membership. A lot of people buy a gym membership and they go, you know, 20 times the first month and then half as many the next month. And by the end of the year, they're like, Oh wow, I did get bamboozled. I've been paying for, for months and I haven't gone. Mm. Like I'm really interested it's to see where thing. we're at. Like, I, I don't, I also don't care about paying whatever $8 and not seeing a movie. It's mainly just like one less barrier of entry, I guess. Yeah. It's, sure. it's, but I, I just wonder if, if by this time next year, if your movie habits would remain the same as they are now, or if you would go back to watching movie pass movies. Money. I'm pretty sure if I still have movie pass, I will still be at the, you know, the same rate of watching movies in the theater that I am now. I think, cause I, 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 you know, part of me, I'm just, I'm a bit frugal. And so I, you know, I kind of like the idea of, of, you know, not having to worry about that at all. It's just like, I have this kind of like fear of, it's kind of like choosing where you want to go out to eat or something. It's like you have this constant, I don't, I don't know, it's just like the same mentality. I don't, I don't know why. It's just like I I don't want to make the wrong decision. I, want, I don't want to make a decision where like I go to see this movie and it's bad and I also spent money on it. I don't know. It's like this compounded thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's my issue with time is I, I don't want to waste you know my time seeing a movie that's not worth Well, I'm not going to go uh, see, it, but... you know whatever that garbage movie was that everyone was talking about, Geostorm. Like, I'm not going to go ever see that in a theater. Or Daddy's Home 2 Christmas Edition, or whatever it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's certain movies where, like, Three Bills, three Billboards Down, for example. You know, movies like that where I've, I've heard they're good, but... Did you just combine Three Doors Down and Three Billboards <laughs> over... Whatever I don't remember <laughs> Black Hawk Down. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there, I'm not. I'm not going to go see any old movie. I'm not going to go see a Marvel movie 
with it because um, I just don't like those movies. But, um, you know, I I will go see a movie that I don't know that much about, um, you know, because it, there's just no cost involved. It's just like I go, and if it's bad, I can leave. I, I, I mostly waste, like, you know, 45 minutes. Well, if it's bad, you can leave anyhow and still get a refund if you haven't finished the movie. Yeah, I guess that's true. I think it does, seems like it just sort of reduces your, like, thought process about what you're doing. You're sort of like, it's just like an available option. Oh, I could go to a movie right now. For for me, yeah, like... I can totally like, afford if, to if see I live as many next... movies as I need to see. It's just like, well, I'm frugal. That's just, that's the bottom line. I think if I live next door to a movie theater and I could walk there and, you know, I had, a, you know, more free time during the day, I would... Probably go see more movies that way. But you've had like plenty um, of free time I, these last few weeks, right? But but I don't live within walking distance of a theater. Yeah. Um, but it's it's also, it's not just like you know, am I working free time? It's do I want to spend this time on a movie or not? Because I'm not watch I'm not using that time to watch movies at home either. Um, I think another aspect to this, and it's maybe slightly unrelated, but the fact that like there are only so many movies in a theater at any given time, whereas I will never watch a movie on Netflix because there are like 150 of them, and I just don't want to commit to any of them. Mm -hmm. Same thing with iTunes. They have every movie, and they're all like, I can buy all of them for like 4 or $5 with the rental thing, but I just don't, I I just cannot pick, and I don't want to like commit to something I won't like. But if if it's at a theater, there's going to be only two movies that I'm probably interested in seeing. I'm just going to watch it, and that's going to be that. That's what I was sort of going to say is, like, I'm also, like, not watching movies, like, in general. Like, I'm not watching them at home instead of in the theater. I mean, I have access to an enormous... Yeah, I mean, Netflix has a ton of stuff that is free to me, and I just don't want to watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's, like, a pretty interesting problem that could have a very lucrative solution if someone made a streaming platform that helped you make a choice and maybe only had, like, ten things on it. Well, Netflix thinks they're doing that by... You know, offering you different selections and genres and like the kind of curated, you know, picks. But it, yeah, I mean, Netflix could change if you don't their like UI those ten options it either. Yeah, you know, like you know, for me, like I, I'm, I'm very rarely in a position where I sit down. And I say, well, I have two hours to kill. I want to watch a movie, but I have nothing on my mind. I have a whole list of movies that I want to watch or I've been told I should watch, and I'm getting through them very, very slowly because I'm just not watching a lot of movies. Um, I'm never in a position where I'm like, just, you know, someone, you know, like just some service, please tell me, you know, what to watch. I, I don't just sit and watch TV. I sit down because I, I, I want to watch a particular movie and like, that's something that I've you know planned out. Like, this is something I, I want to watch. I'm going to make it a point to do it. But I, you know, just like what Will's saying is I, I'm doing that less and less in favor of doing other things, you know, mostly, you know, reading, or anything outside of the house that's you know not movie related. I I wonder if because I'm also not like super hot on like watching all these like prestige bingey dramas. You know, yeah, like, I, are, I want to watch like all of them, of but I never actually get around to wanting to watch them. I feel like the perfect format for me might be like two like forty five minute episodes, and that's like you just take a movie and you like cut it in two. And put it, yeah, as a series, or like maybe one's thirty minutes, and then and then the next one's like fifty minutes. Yeah, I, that's 
pretty good idea, I think. Because like, then I, I just can be like, oh, well, I'm going to watch till the beginning. Like, I might not care. Like, I, I, for whatever reason, I watch a lot of, like, the beginning 10 minutes of mm-hmm. things on Netflix, right? I, I, I found myself more, you know, consciously examining movies that, you know, I might want to watch based on their runtime. And, you know, 90 minutes is that sweet spot where if I watch that, it's not a tremendous waste of time if it's not good. But if it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie and I didn't like it, that's, you know, just feels like a a magnitude of you know, difference in terms of time wasted. Yeah. Well, it's like interesting, like when there's no stop off point there, you feel worse about like the whole thing, right? Like, or, you know, like, cause you obviously could just stop watching a movie in the middle. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, but like, but you know, you're, you're, you know, unless it's so bad that it's unwatchable, which I, I actually did have an experience like that recently where I, watched the first 15 minutes of a movie. I'm like, well, I'm not going to see the rest of this. I just turned it right off and I'll never go see that, you know, see the rest of that. But very rarely is that I'm just like, well, this has to get better or I'm bored now, but this has to have a payoff usually because I'm watching a movie that someone's recommended. So I, I think that maybe there's a reason I should be watching this. Also like all the Netflix shows are too long. They're all like 15 or 20 minutes too long every episode. I think mm-hmm. they're, they just, they, they're too I think most shows are also, they have too many episodes in them. Yeah. Like they're aiming for like 10 hours of content, but they wrote like a seven hour script somehow. Yeah. It does feel like they're sort of stretching mm. or, or just like they're like Westworld. You know, things like that. Yeah. If you give like, I, I mean, Westworld, I guess is a different issue, but like, I, I don't know. Like I feel like on a Netflix show, like they, they're like, oh, well we don't really care about the runtime. And so like every little piece of a scene that might otherwise be cut out for like time or whatever is like allowed to breathe and that's actually like good in a lot of ways but i think it like overall just makes it a little bit messier yeah or at least it feels like everything is like very i don't know like spartan i actually i mean it sounds like a a corporate philosophy problem because i i actually now that i think about it i don't use netflix at all anymore I'm either watching something on Hulu or I'm renting a movie on iTunes or I'm going to the theater. And it's just because when I open Netflix, I'm just inundated with content. Most of it is like for teens <laughs> and the rest of it is like a trash movie. And then there's Maybe like teens one blockbuster that I've already seen. Maybe teens your apartment and <laughs> yeah. adjusting the algorithm. <laughs> I mean, I do share the account with my mom, but she's not watching teen uh, content. Well, we don't know. We don't know what she's watching. Wait, you can have different profiles also to yeah, solve but the problem. Yeah, it's all messed up. <laughs> All right, well, we should probably uh, get going, but thanks to everyone for being here for episode one, The Phantom Menace of Radio Video Village, and we will see you next time. See you in Hollywood. Should we go with that? See see you... Goodbye. See you in health. See you in Hollywood, Will.